From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Thursday, November 8th. I'm Aaron Schachter. A changing of the guard in China, except the old guard is still there, pulling the strings. It would be basically, you know, George Bush the elder and Jimmy Carter going into the Oval Office and saying, OK, Barack, we're going to tell you who you're going to have in your cabinet. You have to listen to us. And later, the story of the Altalena and the conflict that almost destroyed Israel in its infancy. All of a sudden, fire bullets came at us from two sides. Those stories coming up on The World. PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, supporting patient-serving groups such as the International Diabetes Federation, who help empower individuals with diabetes to live life to the fullest. Learn more about the International Diabetes Federation and others who are taking on this disease at Medtronic.com. I'm Aaron Schachter. This is The World. President Obama is back in Washington today. His re-election means there's no change at the very top of the U.S. government, of course. Voters didn't change much in Congress either. Different story in China, where a massive leadership change officially got underway today. The Chinese Communist Party opened a pivotal Congress, which will usher in a new set of Chinese leaders. The world's Mary Kay Magstad is in Beijing. Mary Kay, there are obvious differences between the U.S. elections this week and the the Chinese process, to say the least. Um, Tell us about today's event. One of the big differences between China and the United States in in terms of the leadership transition is, you know, in the U.S., it's very clear uh, what the candidates' positions are, or at least what they say they are. Um, There are a lot of debates. There's a lot of information out in the public sphere. The public can comment. The public can criticize. And nothing happens to those who criticize or comment. In China, we don't even know entirely for sure who's making the decisions about who the next leaders will be. Um, We do know with a fair bit of likelihood that the top two leaders will be Xi Jinping and Li Keqiang. We don't know whether the rest of the Politburo Standing Committee will be a total of seven people or nine. Um, We don't know which faction uh, is going to win out in terms of getting their guys in. We don't even actually know how the factions break down in terms of what they they want, who is more reform-minded and who isn't. Um, But even at this late date, less than a week before the final leaders are announced, it seems that some of this is still in play. Some deals are still being done in back rooms. So Mary Kay, who was at the conference and and what does the organization of the deck chairs mean? Well, something that was kind of interesting about this particular party congress is how many of the old guard were there. And these are people who were in power 10 years ago, 15 years ago, there was Li Peng, the guy who, at Deng Xiaoping's behest, got on Chinese national television and said, we're ordering the troops into Tiananmen Square to crack down on the demonstrators. He was there, sort of smiling faintly as he watched the proceedings. Zheng Zemin, who's 86 years old, who was the previous head of the party, he, he left office 10 years ago. He was there. Zhu Rongji, who was the previous premier and the economic czar in the 1990s, and who actually, to his credit, pushed through a lot of tough economic reforms. He was there. Interestingly, he was 
probably the only senior leader who had allowed his hair to go gray. Everyone else was dying theirs black. He was also the only one wearing a sweater vest under his jacket. But the other guys, you know, they were making quite a show of being in smart suits and, you know, with their hair dyed black and basically making the point of we're here, you can't ignore us. You know, I mean, think about what this would be like in the American context. It would be basically, you know, George Bush, the elder and Jimmy Carter going into the Oval Office and saying, OK, Barack, we're going to tell you who you're going to have in your cabinet. and You have to listen to us. Now, uh, before the Congress got started, you told us about all these uh, security measures that the uh, government was going through to ensure that there was no leafleting or anything like that. Has there been any noticeable public response to the Congress? Any errant ping pong balls bouncing around Tiananmen Square? I haven't seen any ping pong balls or balloons being released with hidden messages or leaflets thrown out of windows. But, you know, the police certainly did seem to think of every possible way that uh, a dissident could, you know, voice his or her discontent. And, And so far, not too much of that happening. The world's Mary Kay Magstad in Beijing. Thank you. Thanks, Aaron. It's also a time of transition in Egypt. The country has changed a lot already in the wake of the Arab Spring Revolution there, but more change is on the way. A new constitution has yet to be written, and that sparked a furious debate over issues like Islamic law and freedom of speech. One salvo in that debate was fired this week by Egypt's top prosecutor. He ordered government ministries to block access to pornographic websites. Reporter Noelle King is in Cairo. She says reaction to the porn ban highlights a deep divide within Egyptian society. There is a large segment of the Egyptian population which is religiously conservative, which thinks that pornography is corrosive to youth, goes against the values and norms of society, and they want to see it banned. On the other hand, the liberals who were empowered during the Egyptian revolution have taken to social media today, to Twitter, and they've said, look, this is absolutely ridiculous. You start with banning pornography, and before long we've got a situation like the one we had under Hosni Mubarak. It isn't so terribly shocking that an Arab Islamic government in the Middle East would attempt to block porn, but the difference here is that this is a democratically elected government that is supposed to uphold those principles, right? This is the question. Is Egypt at heart a conservative country? Is it a Muslim nation that wants Muslim laws, that wants the the sort of religiously conservative norms that you see in countries like Iran or Pakistan? Or is Egypt at heart a country that respects freedom of speech and freedom of expression, even if you don't like pornography? And certainly many Egyptians do. Does it respect freedom of expression enough to say we are not going to allow things to start being blocked? Now, remember, during the Egyptian elections, the men, and they were mostly men who were voted into office, were men who were conservatives. They are on the side that says pornography is corrosive to Egyptian society. It's contrary to the national ethic, and we don't like it. They represent a good part of Egypt. Now, they are obviously, as you say, the majority in government. But as far as the public goes, is there any indication, uh, you know, which side will win out? I'm going to put this as delicately as I can. There are a lot of very young men in Egypt, and one of the knock-on effects of a foundering economy over the past decade is that young men are not getting married at age 20 or age 21 anymore. They're getting married at 30 or 31. There's a whole decade where young Egyptian men don't have a lot to do, which means a lot of Egyptian men are looking at pornography. So even if you exclude the moral argument, there is a very specific social argument that's going to happen here. I will say this anecdotally. I heard from Egyptian women today on both sides of the spectrum. And what they said is, we have to deal with enough 
sexual harassment when we walk in the streets. If you take pornography away from Egyptian men, do you have any idea how bad it's going to get for us? One of the interesting aspects of this ban is it happens to be an issue that both the uh, current Islamic-led government and the, uh, the former dictator Hosni Mubarak agree. Well, you know, the prosecutor general who called to implement the ban is, as you say, a remnant of the regime of Hosni Mubarak. He has a very chilly relationship with President Mohamed Morsi. The two men a few weeks ago actually clashed outright. Morsi attempted to remove the prosecutor general from his position. He said, you haven't done a very good job of going after the men who are accused of killing Egyptian protesters during the revolution. I am taking you out of that top judiciary spot and I'm sending you, believe it or not, as an ambassador to the Vatican. The very next day, the prosecutor general came out and said, I'm not going to leave this job unless I'm assassinated. Now, if you're an ambitious remnant of the Mubarak regime and you want to get along with the new guys in power, the Muslim Brotherhood, what is one of the things you can do? You can bang the drum on one of their flashpoint issues, the banning of pornography. Some analysts believe that that's what's happening here. This is about political gamesmanship as much as anything. Noel, as you say, uh, hard to tell where things will go with this particular law banning pornography. But one thing we know for certain is that the software to block pornography is not cheap. Can Egypt actually afford to do this? You know, that's a great question. And in the end, that's what this might come down to. What technology experts came up with, the figure they came up with is $16.5 million in the first six months and then millions of dollars each month after that. Again, we're talking about a country where about half of the population is on or below the poverty line. There is no extra money for something like this. And some of the fiercest critics have said, why are we not focusing on our economy, which is in disarray? Why are we talking about instituting a procedure that's going to cost of millions of dollars that we simply don't have lying around. Reporter Noel King in Cairo, thank you. Thank you, Aaron. The cleanup from Hurricane Sandy continues, not just in New York and New Jersey, but in the Caribbean as well. Cuba was among the nations hit hard by Sandy. The storm ripped through the island southeast, killing 11 people. It destroyed more than 200,000 homes and knocked out power to Cuba's second largest city, Santiago. Two weeks later, authorities are still struggling to cope. The BBC's Sarah Rainsford traveled today to the town of Sibonay, near Santiago. Earlier, via cell phone, she told us what she saw there. It's a really devastating scene here. I'm looking at buildings which uh, have gone completely. There's just a couple of bits of brick left behind and and furniture, a chair in the middle of one pile of bricks, for example. Uh, The building I'm standing next to now, it still has the walls, but there's no roof. There's a tangled mass of metal at the front of it huge trees that sort of smashed to the ground and are just lying there. Lots of others that have been chopped up already ready for removal. And the seawall, very badly damaged, and the road here has has disappeared almost completely uh, in front of me. So this area, Sibonay, right on the coast where the the storm entered Cuba, people have pretty much moved out of here because uh, there's nothing left to live in. So people are mostly gone. Are, Are there cleanup crews there? Yeah, there's a huge cleanup operation underway. I mean, we've seen teams of electricians everywhere we look along the road uh, trying to get the the lampposts back up, trying to restore electricity to people. It's uh, two weeks now since the hurricane hit. And last night when we entered Santiago, there was already a lot of power restored to the city itself. Uh, You could see lights on on many of the buildings throughout the city. But uh, some of the smaller villages that we entered didn't have electricity. And, And how does what you're seeing there compare to what you see in Havana? Havana wasn't affected at all. This was a hurricane that hit the east of the island. It swept through 
uh, Santiago province, Guantanamo, Holguin, uh, those are the areas that were really badly affected. And I think uh, one of the reasons that people here were hit so hard is that it's not an area that's normally accustomed to, to suffering hurricanes. The west of the island is much more used to this kind of storm. And perhaps that's one reason why so many people died. Eleven people died, including a four-month-old baby. It's a very small number compared to Haiti or compared even to the United States. But for Cuba, that's an awful lot. This country does pride itself on a very organized civil defense system, a very uh, strong obligatory evacuation system. So 11 people dying here in Cuba is obviously very serious. And perhaps it's because this area of Santiago isn't really used to this kind of storm. Now, the UN's World Food Program has pledged to bring in aid to Cuba. Have you seen any evidence yet of the international aid making its way there? I haven't seen it myself, but I do know that it's happening, not so much from the UN yet, but certainly from Venezuela. Uh, They have sent several uh, dozens of tons of food aid. Uh, There's been construction materials coming in from Russia as well. I believe Bolivia has sent a plane load of food and aid to Cuba. So quite a lot coming in. You know, this is a poor country at the best of times. And here in Santiago, you know, these are not the best of times. So certainly any aid that's coming in is extremely welcome here. In general, it does sound like Cuba and rescue efforts are are going pretty well. It does. If you read the state media here, obviously the focus is very much on the revolutionary spirit, the unity of the people and how everyone's working extremely hard to get the country back up and running. You could be cynical about that, but actually down here on the ground, it is what you see. I met some people whose houses were damaged who said that the night of the hurricane they were extremely frightened, that they were crying as the storm hit. But, you know, they are very grateful for the way that the Cuban Recovery Services and the military as well are working, together with volunteers, to try to restore things here, to get things back to normal. The people who lost their houses because of Hurricane Sandy, where are they now? Well, what we've been told by the locals here in this area is that many of them are living with family, moved in with relatives, moved in with neighbours. I I did speak to one person last night who said they had three neighbours living with them because their houses had been damaged. There aren't people in tents, for example, or sleeping under the stars, so there's not that kind of situation here. It's, It's sort of all hands on deck. Sarah Rainsford is the BBC's Cuba correspondent. She is in Santiago right now, a region hard hit in Cuba by Hurricane Sandy. Sarah, thank you so much. No problem. Thank you. Coming up, a look at British military exploits over the centuries. You might not be shocked to learn there are very few countries Britain hasn't invaded. This is Public Radio International, PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, supporting patient-serving groups such as the International Diabetes Federation, who help empower individuals with diabetes to live life to the fullest. Learn more about the International Diabetes Federation and others who are taking on this disease at Medtronic.com. I'm Aaron Schachter. This is The World. In Israel, school kids are focusing this year on two of their former prime ministers— David Ben-Gurion and Menachem Begin. Next year will be the 100th anniversary of Begin's birth and 40 years since Ben-Gurion's death. And Israeli authorities believe there's lots to learn from these two national icons. Ben-Gurion and Begin actually didn't like each other very much. Eventually, they reconciled. But in the first few weeks after the State of Israel was founded in 1948, these two Jewish leaders were on a dangerous collision course. The world's Matthew Bell explains how the sinking of a cargo ship off Israel's coast more than 60 years ago still resonates today. On the boardwalk in central Tel Aviv, across the street from a McDonald's next to a beachfront bar, there's a stone memorial to 16 Jewish martyrs. The men killed near here in 1948 were members of the Irgun militia, and they died during the sinking of the Altalena, 
The cargo ship arrived off Israel's coast just one month after the Jewish state declared independence. The commander of the Irgun was Menachem Begin. The man who gave the order to attack the Irgun ship, the Altalena, was David Ben-Gurion, Israel's first prime minister. People were very angry. They were angry? Yeah. Shlomo Nakdimon is a retired Israeli journalist. At the age of 12, he came here to see the smoldering hulk of the Altalena with his own eyes. And he remembers how people felt about the newly founded Israel Defense Forces killing Jewish militiamen of the Irgun. I was angry like the other people because uh, the people say that could be to solve the problem with, without shooting, without Jews killing Jews. Jews killing Jews. That is what makes the Altalena affair such a painful subject for Israelis even to this day. Yehiel Kadishai was one of about 900 passengers on board the ship. They were Jewish refugees from Europe, along with some number of Irgun fighters like Kadishai himself. He says the mood on the ship was one of indescribable joy. These were Jewish survivors of World War II leaving Europe for an independent Jewish state. I was very happy, together with all of us. We were singing the anthem, the Hatikva, Odlo Avda Tikvatenu. Our hope is not lost yet. Lashuv Le'eretz Avotenu, to come back to the land of our forefathers, Eretz Tzion B'Yerushalayim, the land of Zion and Jerusalem. When the Altalena dropped anchor, the refugees went ashore and were sent off on buses to begin their new lives. The Yirgun men remained on the beach. Their job was to unload a huge stockpile of weapons from the Altalena. The Irgun leader, Menachem Begin, was there, and Kadeshai says he called for everyone's attention. And Begin started to speak and to say that there are some differences of opinion between the government and the Irgun. And he said a few sentences, two or three sentences, and all of a sudden, fire of bullets came at us from two sides. In the confusion, Kadeshai says he and the rest of the men on the beach took cover and grabbed guns. They fired back, but didn't know who they were shooting at. I was lying there next to me, uh, one boy whom I knew from Italy was shot in his, uh, uh, what do you call it? In his leg. Leg, in his leg here. In his thigh. In his thigh. And uh, the blood was flowing from him. I couldn't move. And I didn't know what to do. The boy next to Kadeshai bled to death on the beach that night. Over the next day or so, the violence continued. The IDF shelled the Altalena. When the shooting stopped, 16 Irgun men were dead, along with three IDF troops. The ship was in flames, much of its cargo lost. Kadeshai says the idea that Irgun men would be shot at by members of the IDF was unthinkable, and it's still difficult to talk about. I'm still, now I can smile and laugh, because 65 years almost passed. <laughs> so are you still angry now at Ben-Gurion, who made the decision to... Well, it's the last day of my life. <laughs> I'll be angry. <laughs> Yehiel Kadeshai would go on to become Menachem Begin's personal secretary. In the summer of 1948, the newborn state of Israel was fighting its war of independence against hostile Arab armies, the Altalena, was bringing in badly needed weapons. But Prime Minister David Ben-Gurion saw Begin's militia as a threat to the new Israeli government, and he was willing to spill Jewish blood to establish his authority. 
Herzl Makov, director of the Begin Center in Jerusalem, says it was Menachem Begin who pulled Israel back from the brink of civil war. Begin decided not to fight back. Begin realized it's a strategic issue. If we, the Jewish people, are going to have among ourselves now a war, there's no chance to, to get the independence. So we ordered, don't shoot back. Makov wants to underscore this lesson by raising at least part of the Altalena from the bottom of the Mediterranean and building a new monument. He's looking for funding now. But there's an enduring dispute over the Altalena. Not everyone sees Begin as the hero of the story. Some would say Ben-Gurion's decision, as difficult as it might have been, to strike against the Irgun weapon ship was a key moment. It's when Israel became a truly sovereign state. Everything was still in the making. So in this situation, the determination of Ben-Gurion was absolutely necessary. Anita Shapira is a historian with the Israel Democracy Institute. The idea that small minorities are entitled to use force to change the course of history was a basic tenet of all Jewish underground. And Ben-Gurion wouldn't have any of it. The Altalena affair is burned into Israel's collective memory, and people have continued to draw historical analogies. During negotiations between Israel and the Palestinians, there were calls for Yasser Arafat to create his own Altalena moment by reigning in Palestinian militia groups by force. Then there's the comparison with the Jewish settlements scattered across the West Bank. Like the Irgun militia, some Israelis view the settlers as the vanguard of the Zionist movement. Others look at the settlement project and see a threat to Israeli law and democracy. In any case, Herzl Makov at the Begin Center says, learning from history is important, and he's not giving up on the effort to raise the Altalena. For The World, I'm Matthew Bell in Jerusalem. You can see historical photos of the Altalena after it was bombed, plus pictures of the memorial in Tel Aviv today. They're at theworld.org. Now, does anyone out there know how to say geoquiz in Aramaic? Aramaic is sometimes called the language of Jesus and of the Talmud, so it has a long history. It's a language that's outlived empires and has been used for worship for more than 3,000 years. Today, a couple hundred thousand native Aramaic speakers are scattered around the world, but the ancient language is fading and considered endangered. So, for our quiz, we're looking for the name of a town in Israel in the shadow of Mount Meron where a Maronite Christian community is trying to keep the ancient language alive. Schoolchildren there are even learning songs in Aramaic, like the one you're hearing. We'll hear more about this northern Israeli town when we return with the answer later in the program. This is PRI. I'm Aaron Schachter. Coming up, Afghan girls get a chance to play soccer. In Afghanistan, we have um, more than 500 girls playing football and also more than 20 clubs in uh, Afghanistan and football clubs we have. It's a good step for beginning sports in Afghanistan by women. Plus, Afghanistan's first female rapper ahead on The World. 
CBRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, supporting patient-serving groups such as the International Diabetes Federation, who help empower individuals with diabetes to live life to the fullest. Learn more about the International Diabetes Federation and others who are taking on this disease at Medtronic.com. I'm Aaron Schachter, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. U.S. troops in Afghanistan continue to do battle with insurgents on a daily basis. That's the sound from a video showing a nighttime firefight in Khost, eastern Afghanistan. It's the kind of footage we Americans don't see much on TV anymore. One of the most reliable places to find such videos and news from the war is the blog Corksphere, but not for much longer. Its editor Bill Corcoran says he's winding the blog down due to lack of interest. Corcoran served in the Korean War, then worked as a reporter and columnist for various papers before starting Corksphere four years ago. What got me going was uh, I was finding it, as a veteran myself, it was, I was finding it more and more difficult to, to get information on the war, uh, wars, uh, actually, in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, the mainstream media was not covering the war, wars, and I felt that the, that the American public deserves more information than they are getting. Well, Bill Corcoran, you're, you're 83 years old. Are you just tired of doing this? Uh, you're fed up? Yeah, why, why stop? I am. Uh, I'm tired. Uh, you know, it's kind of a futile thing. You, you feel kind of, uh, I guess I feel kind of like I'm sweeping the ocean back with a broom or something. Uh-huh. Right. Uh, there's just no, uh, it's just not the interest there that there used to be. And uh, not on my part, but on the public's part. Uh, do, you, do you understand that lack of interest? Because even here, I, I know it's frustrating you, you talk about the mainstream media. You feel like after a certain time, you're saying the same thing over and over when you when you talk about the wars right. in Iraq and Afghanistan. Exactly. Do, do you uh, understand and, uh, public fatigue? Oh, absolutely. I definitely can understand it. And again, it's in its 12th year now. There's only so many ways you can say uh, a car bomb went off today or so many ways a suicide attack took place. And I think either, I don't know if this is on purpose, on des- by design, or uh, whether it's something that's just happening, but the Department of Defense or whoever releases all this stuff, uh, you're, you're, uh, you're limited on what, what you, you can get anymore. Probably the one thing that bothers me more than anything is uh, the information on troops when they are injured or, or, or worse yet, killed. It's very hard to find out if they're from the United States or whether they're Australian or whether who they're, who they're with. I wonder if you, you were in the military yourself in Korea, which you've called the Forgotten War. Um, right. I wonder if um, it angers you at all that um, the military is so um, tight-lipped about what goes on in Afghanistan and Iraq. Yeah, I am. Uh, I definitely am. I feel that the uh, there should be more transparency. I I don't see any reason to keep it so 
so quiet and hidden right now. I, I think uh, uh, they they just as soon see it disappear altogether. And and when they phase this thing out, uh, it'll be like uh, somebody will wake up one day and say, "Well, uh, I haven't read anything on that Afghanistan war for a while," <laughs> and uh, and they'll say, "Oh, that's because we we pulled out of there." Uh, three months ago or so. Right. Bill, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. There have been dozens of U.S. military interventions around the globe since our nation was founded. It started even before we were fully independent, with an invasion of what's now Canada in 1775 and a raid on the Bahamas in 1776. But when it comes to sending troops to foreign lands, we've got nothing on the British. A new book suggests Britain gets the dubious distinction of having invaded more countries than any other. In fact, the book claims there are only 22 nations in the world that have never suffered British military attack. Our resident history buff, news editor Chris Wolfe, however, thinks Britain has invaded even more countries. Chris, uh, what mistake did you spot? Well, the one that leapt out at me, of course, was Sweden, because who can forget the Gothenburg expedition of 1808? Shocking, uh, really. When uh, we sent a small force to go bully the king of Sweden to um, help us in the war against Napoleon, the, the French emperor. And then uh, I was thinking also possibly uh, the book. Uh, it's a lovely book called All the Countries We've Ever Invaded and the Few We Never Got Round To by a British chap called Stuart Laycock. Uh, he also lists Guatemala as never having been affected by... Uh, It was not so much an invasion as being subject really to state-sanctioned military activity of a kind of a hostile nature. So, for example, like Guatemala, I'm pretty sure that uh, when the British had a few logwood cutters trying to set up a colony in what's now Belize, also raided were the neighboring coastline of Guatemala as well. But that still leaves only 20 countries not invaded. Now, we're using the word invaded. But these are not all countries where Britain has gone in, and, like India, and, and set up shop. No, it's pretty much anywhere that the Brits have gone in, uh, or even Brits that have been, you know, in the days of freelance military, state-sanctioned military types who've gone off and done things in countries that, where they're not welcome. You know, for example, obviously, we used to license privateers like Francis Drake to go and singe the king of Spain's beard wherever Spanish interests could be found by raiding all kinds of places in the Caribbean and even on the Pacific coast of South America. And there was a little distance between the crown and these um, nasty people. But, you know, they were still pursuing... um, No, well, of course, Francis Drake, when he got back, was knighted by the queen from one of his great circumnavigations uh, for all the loot he brought home and shared with Her Majesty. (laughs) uh, Okay, so... You, you fancy yourself a history buff. You've wowed us Uh-oh. already. Um, how about a test? Uh, okay. All right. One of the, uh, uh, what is it, 180-some-odd countries that uh, Britain has invaded. Tell me when, where, how. Brazil. Brazil, that's a tough one. Uh, there, um, ha, they, stumped you. Not quite, oh. because there was a um, campaign in 1762 between Spain and Portugal where the British sent some forces to go and assist the Portuguese, Brazil then being a Portuguese colony, and the fighting stretched across uh, what's now Uruguay and southern Brazil. Obviously, you could just say anything, and I have no idea. Well, if the listeners can come up with any challenges, then would be, it would be great to hear them. How about South Africa? Well, South Africa, um, several attacks uh, when it was occupied by the Dutch, 
the Brits would try and take it and finally succeeded uh, in um, 1796. And then, of course, it was occupied as a British colony for over 100 years. And there were several wars against the African people living there. And then the white settlers, the Dutch white settlers, the Brits had three wars with the, the Boers, as they were called. <laughs> so which country has Britain invaded the most? Well, Ireland has probably suffered the longest continuous military occupation over 700 years. Um, it certainly wasn't a welcome presence for most of the people there. But the country that suffered the most repeated attacks is, of course, France, our nearest continental neighbour. And, of course, that's um, probably the source of the traditional animosity between the Brits and the French. Now, Chris, we're we're treating this a bit lightly in, in lieu of the book that just came out, but this is deadly serious business. It is. And of course, you know, um, the Brits have a little pride in the accomplishments of their service personnel, much in the same way Americans do. And one always likes to think it's in a virtuous cause. But uh, obviously, um, that's not always the, the, the same memory that the people on the other end have. Uh, just last year, there was an investigation into the British counterinsurgency campaign in Kenya in the 1950s and uh, sadly documented all kinds of uh, atrocities and abuses that uh, sustain on uh, any country. So, yes, of course, uh, one shouldn't take this too lightly. Uh, the world's Chris Wolf, uh, as you can tell from the accent, a member of the British Empire. Thank you. You're welcome. You know, Chris is great at rattling historical facts off the top of his head. It's kind of freaky, actually. So go ahead, fellow history buffs, fact check him. Let's catch him out. You can post your challenges or try and stump Chris with an obscure question about Britain's nefarious past. It's all at theworld.org. A town in Israel was the focus of our geo-quiz today. It's where a Maronite Christian community is trying to keep the ancient language of Aramaic alive. The answer is Jish in northern Israel. Ksenia Svetlova writes for the Jewish Daily Forward. This past summer, she visited Jish to observe a summer camp where children were immersed in the language and culture of Aramaic. Apart from language lessons, they also have geography and history when they learn about their heritage, about where Aramaic was spoken, that it was lingua franca of the Middle East, not only of ancient kingdom of Israel, but, uh, you know, everybody spoke it. To be clear, the people in Jish, Israel considers Arabs, right? Yes. They, yes. Con they consider themselves Maronite Christians and not Arabs. They consider themselves Aramaic. Aramaic. Yes. So what, what does that mean? Explain to us. Basically, that means that uh, their ethnicity is different from the Arabic ethnicity. And they clearly say that uh, as Arameans, they existed uh, in these places long before the Arabs came, long before the Arab conquest in the 7th century. And uh, that there is absolutely no grounds to call them Arabs. They uh, compare their situation with the situation of the Jews that uh, the Jews existed in this land uh, before the Arab conquest. So what's happening in Jish is the people there are not just learning Aramaic. They're teaching about this culture, the Maronite Christian culture, and they want to be a separate um, ethnicity in Israel, don't they? Exactly. Uh, they were turned down by the Ministry of Interior twice. And um, in a few weeks' time, they are appealing to the high court and they're seeking recognition, basically, as a um, separate ethnicity. And um, that petition to the uh, Ministry of the Interior, is a, it's a bit controversial from what you write. Yes, it is controversial because even in Jish, uh, not everybody supports uh, their cause. And some feel very strongly about it and uh, 
they consider themselves uh, both Arabs and uh, very even the Arab nationalists, I would say, yes. And uh, they believe that it will hurt the Palestinian cause and that it will hurt the Arab unity between Muslims and Christians and it can steer some some kind of problem, both in, uh, inside Israel and also outside of Israel, maybe in Lebanon, you know, because there are strong ties between the community of Maronites in Israel and in Lebanon across the border. Now, here's a really interesting thing that you write about. Um, there are no more than 200,000 speakers of Aramaic in the world, this uh, Semitic language from back in Jesus's time. But the largest number who exists are in Sweden, of all places. Why is that? Well, uh, there are large Aramaic-speaking communities also in other places, also uh, in the United States and also in Latin America. But apparently in Sweden, due to very lax policy of immigration uh, back in you know 50s and 60s when people were starting to immigrate from the Middle East and, of course, the 70s when uh, the civil war in Lebanon. So uh, a lot of families came and then they brought their relatives. So I interviewed a couple of people that I know from Jerusalem. They are Syriacs. Christian Syriacs, which is a different denomination from the Maronites, but very close to them. So they say that every Syriac and every Maronite have somebody in Sweden, which is amazing, really. Like there are huge clans, huge families. So they have their own Aramaic-speaking television, Aramaic-language television, radio station, and a couple of uh, newspapers. So this community in Sweden is basically supporting the community in Israel, and they're sending their textbooks and... uh, they are all connected, of course, to the Aramaic language channel on television and via the Internet. Now, we've said there are about 200,000 Aramaic speakers in the world, but how big is this community there in the Galilee and Jish? And what chance do you think it has now, after being rejected twice, of actually being recognized as a minority in Israel? The community is not large. Uh, the village of Jish, it's uh, only 3,000 people. There are other Maronites as well in Haifa and in some other villages scattered across the Galilee. The total number of Maronites, it reaches approximately 10,000 people. Mm-hmm. I don't know about their chances, of course. This is for the court to decide. The people that are getting ready you know, for this very important uh, hearing that will take place at the end of the year, they are very optimistic. Why do you think the Ministry of Interior turned down this request? There are political reasons behind this decision. You know, Israel has enough problems of its own with the Palestinians, with all of its Arab neighbors. It doesn't want to be in the middle of potential new conflict between Muslims and Christians and between Christians among themselves, those who support this idea, those who are against it, because... The thing is that this attempt to get the recognition, it's not only for the Maronites. Anybody that would be interested to be recognized as the Aramaic might now, uh, even he's a Greek Catholic. If if you let one group do it, then you have to let everyone do it. Yes. So maybe it will cause a lot of problems. And uh, this is another conflict that Israel perhaps doesn't want to be involved in. Ksenia Svetlova writes for The Jewish Forward. It's based in New York. She is based in Israel. Ksenia, thank you so much. Thank you. Our language podcast, The World in Words, has more from Ksenia Svetlova on the revival of Aramaic. Plus, you can hear the kids in Jish singing in Aramaic. That's all at theworld.org. By the way, thanks for sharing all your clever dog pictures. Well, I'm partial to my own two pups, of course. Twitter user Nelvi Diaz's replacement, Ruffery, is priceless. We posted all your pics on our Facebook page and keep tweeting them with the hashtag CleverDog. This is PRI.
I'm Aaron Schachter, and this is The World. The U.S. combat role in Afghanistan may be winding down, but it's not exactly a peaceful place. Today, a suicide attack and two roadside bombs killed 20 people across the country. Some of them were children. It's a depressing picture, but it's not the whole picture. Our next two stories give a more positive view of life there. We start with the world's Clark Boyd. Afghanistan native Saja Sahar spent much of her childhood in neighboring Pakistan. That had a lot to do with the Taliban and soccer. Saja Sahar's father was a famous player on the Afghan men's national soccer team, and the Taliban, well, effectively banned the sport from 1996 until it was ousted from power by U.S.-led forces in 2001. While the family was in Pakistan, Sahar's father introduced her to soccer, or football as it's more widely known. We were in Pakistan, and sometimes in the evening we were going to the park and I was playing with my father and with my brothers, and... That was the reason that I liked football and I, I wished to play for the team. When Sahar's family went back to Afghanistan, she began studying in Kabul. She still wanted to play football, but there were no teams, no clubs. It was too hard for women and also for girls to play football and also other sports. But uh, I was studying in a course and from there I made a clap for my course and then we joined the tournament and that was the beginning. There were a lot of girls interested in playing, Sahar says, but not so many Afghans interested in seeing girls play. At the beginning, when I started playing football, I had many problems just from coming to practice and also going back to home and the street and other places. I had a lot of problems. And also I was receiving many phone calls. They were telling me that why you play football, you're a girl, you should stay at home and you should just um, study and you're not allowed to just join the teams and play football or um, many other sports like this. Sahar says she ignored them. But for other girls, it wasn't so easy. Their family, Sahar says, told them to stop playing. She remembers trying to convince one family who forced their daughter to quit. I went to talk with her family, but it was not useful. They said that uh, we cannot uh, allow our daughters to go out and play football. I really feel sad for this. And because of the families and also because of the people in Afghanistan, uh, they are not supporting the girls and also the sport women very well. Still, the Afghan women continue to practice, using a field at a local military base. There's a YouTube video from 2010 showing the Afghan women's team taking on a team made up of NATO soldiers. The Afghan women won that match, by the way, 1-0. Also that year, the Afghan women competed for the first time at the South Asian Football Federation tournament. They got pummeled by Nepal 13 to nothing, and then lost to Pakistan. But last month, with Saji Sahara's captain, they avenged their loss in this year's tournament. They beat Pakistan and then made it to the semifinals before losing to the eventual winner, India. For Sahar and the Afghan team, things are looking up. They no longer practice on a military base. They have their own field. And the sport is growing. In Afghanistan, we have um, more than uh, 500 girls playing football and also more than 20 clubs in uh, Afghanistan and football clubs we have. It's a good step for beginning sports in Afghanistan uh, by women. The country already has a fledgling premier league for the men. The 21-year-old Sahar says that with government and public support, the women's game could grow too. She says she hopes to play soccer full-time after she graduates from college. And as for the naysayers, those who keep telling her that girls shouldn't play soccer, Sahar recently told an interviewer, They say stop playing, but I can't stop playing. I can stop living but I can't stop playing football. For The World, this is Clark Boyd. Afghan women are also making strides in another cultural arena, usually dominated by men, music. 
And one example of that is Susan Firuz. She's a 23-year-old actress who's recently become Afghanistan's first female rapper. That's Firuz's only song so far. It's called Our Neighbors. And it's striking a chord with people who, like her, grew up as refugees during the Afghan civil war of the 1990s. Farooz spent her childhood in Iran and Pakistan. She and her family went back to Afghanistan seven years ago. And now she's found a way to share her experience living in exile with others. I can share my feelings with my people by singing rap. I can tell people what happened while I was living as a refugee and share sad stories through the music. I asked my father's permission to sing rap, and he said yes. Listen to my story, she raps. War started. It pushed us out. And that's when our misery and homelessness began. The song was composed by Afghan musician Farid Rastagar, who is also Susan Farooz's mentor. He says music offers inspiration to young Afghans. And he says many young singers in the country want to tell people that they're not extremists or Taliban. They want to help change this country, says Rastagar. Susan Farooz lives in Kabul, where she supports her family with the money she makes as an actress. That profession, for the most part, seems safe. But her decision to start singing has rattled extremists. My family supports me and they're proud of me. But there are some people who call me on the phone to threaten me. They tell me that if I continue singing, they'll spray acid in my face. But I'm not afraid. I'll keep singing. But Susan's father does worry about her safety. Abdul Rafar Farooz gave up his job so he can make sure his daughter is safe at her various jobs. Of course I worry sometimes, but Susan is a brave girl. I tell her not to think about the threats and continue her work. We have no other choice. This is our country. We have been refugees for a long time, but I'm optimistic about the future here. Despite the threats, Susan Farooz performed at a three-day music festival in Kabul last month. She shared the stage with other rappers and artists. Among them was Ruth Owen, a British punk musician living in Kabul. I never thought there would come a day where I would see female rappers on stage. I would see female graffiti artists on TV uh, and painting on the walls of Kabul, and I would see female guitarists. I really didn't think uh, the country would advance that much so quickly. I was wrong, and I feel almost ashamed that I thought Afghan women weren't maybe not capable of that, but they didn't have the bravery. Boy, was I wrong. Old Neighbors by Afghan rapper Susan Farooz closes our program today. From the Nan and Bill Harris studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Aaron Schachter. Thanks for tuning in. <laughs>
The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes that a great nation deserves great art. The Rita Allen Foundation, investing in transformative ideas in their earliest stages to leverage their growth and promote breakthrough solutions to significant problems. Online at RitaAllen.org. And by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can. PRI Public Radio International.